Welcome to The Legal Eagle, where we explore many of the legal issues Connecticut residents face in one form or another every day. We look into the criminal and civil justice system, both at the state and federal level, and we talk about issues facing the bar and the judiciary and and the various issues facing the courts, Connecticut and beyond. Today, we welcome attorney Bob Mitchell of the Stratford-based law firm Mitchell & Cheyenne. He's one of the best-known labor and employment attorneys in the state, and he specializes in uh, representing both employers and employees. And he's been selected as one of Connecticut's top 10 super lawyers along the way. I checked that out. I didn't write that, though, but go ahead. No, you didn't. I did. (laughs) So um, he practices in many courts, federal and state, uh, advises public sector employees, private company managements, and individual employees on their rights and obligations. And he's been thinking a lot about uh, President Trump's um, immigration ban, its impact upon state and federal law, and... I have to say, uh, first of all, welcome, Bob. To Thank the, you very much. I'm so glad you could come today to our show. And and when Bob arrived, I just um, I had just looked about an hour earlier at the front page of the New York Times, uh, Tuesday, February seventh, two thousand seventeen, and there's the story about uh, the big, basically the big labor story of the day, of uh, the legal story of the day. Uh, and it has to do with um, a friend of the court brief called an amicus brief uh, that was filed um, uh, yesterday, uh, and it's it's got to do with a whole group of workers, um, uh, nearly 130 companies and the top top uh, tech people in the country, uh, and it's got to do with their protest over the immigration ban, and their their company's ability to help their workers. So Mm -hmm. you want to talk about that a little bit, uh, Bob? Well, I think that they're uh, striking out at it, uh, at the ruling at the executive order, because it's going to have an adverse impact, they believe, Mm -hmm. uh, not just in a, in a moral sense, if you will, Mm -hmm. but also in the sense that frankly, number as people know, a large number of our high tech engineers and whatnot come from the very areas that the executive order has touched upon or has supposedly prohibited immigration. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of them come from other Muslim countries, which in turn may also be someday included in this ban if the ban is successful. I think that these people are stretching out to try to stop it as best they can mm-hmm. uh, uh, because the impact on their companies, the impact on the economy as they see it. Also, as I said, I think a lot of them have a very strong a moral feeling about the issue. Right. So... Here you have a, um, uh, this was filed in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Yes. Um, which is a sort of one of the appeals courts, I guess, that the Supreme Court is not look lovingly at, right? No, it's <laughs> the largest and it's the uh, most liberal of all the Court of Appeals. Right. Um, and so uh, what's interesting is that there are, you know, hundreds of these companies, and including uh, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, Google, Tesla, Uber, Intel, uh, and these are major major companies, and and, and they're all together on in this brief. Have you ever seen anything quite like this? Well, it does happen occasionally, but uh, not in this particular area. Immigration is not generally something that the big companies <clears throat> get that worked up over, uh, because the rules have been in place for, for so long and it's so right. complicated and fouled up. Yeah. But to have a hundred and thirty. Companies in one industry right. uh, sign on to a single 
uh, amicus brief is, is a little unusual, I think. Yeah. But this is an unusual case. It was brought by states. It wasn't even brought by an individual. Right. That's what's so fascinating. You sort of see, you look at the front of it, it says the state of Washington versus Donald J. Trump. I mean, and the state of I think, Minnesota. Minnesota, right? And this, so that's one interesting thing. And I think tonight the Ninth Circuit might be hearing oral arguments via phone, which might, I, I think it it might be transcribed to or her. One can hear it. I think as it's going on. I'm not quite sure about that. They may be uh, they may be replaying it. I think they're actually hearing it today. But uh-huh. they're going to give. I think there's a total of one hour of argument that's going to be allowed. Right. Which, believe it or not, is more than you usually get. Oh, it is. Oh, yeah. okay. So one of the things that it says in the motion for leave for to for for these technology companies is it says that the order represents, meaning the uh, president's order represents a significant departure from the principles of fairness and predictability that have governed the immigration system of the United States for more than 50 years. And the order inflicts significant harm on American businesses, innovation, and growth as a result. Um, The order makes it more difficult and expensive for U.S. companies to recruit, hire, and retain some of the world's best employees. It disrupts ongoing business operations and it threatens companies' ability to attract talent, business, and investment to the United States. As an employment lawyer, what could you elaborate on well, this? Well, first of all, on the other side of the coin for a moment, yes, those arguments are raised every time some economic regulation is put into effect. Mm-hmm. I think the one that is the most in, in, interesting to me is the predictability argument. I'll talk to that. The immigration system for many years has been, has frankly been unpredictable. It's very difficult to judge mm-hmm. when, for instance, an H-1B, which is the uh, employment visa, is going to be granted or not granted. It's There's a lot of discretion left in the immigration services. Mm-hmm. But I do believe it is unpredictable. I think this makes it more unpredictable. unpredictable. I think their point is well taken in the sense that it's going to be difficult to recruit individuals to come to this country, mm-hmm. get themselves in, invested in a job, and then face the possibility that all of a sudden, um, rather dramatically, they're excluded and told to leave or they're, or they're not allowed to travel and come back in. Mm-hmm. And I think that is going to create serious uh, problems for these companies and for many other high-tech in, or, or upper-end end industries like the hospitals, for example, that use a lot of uh, uh, foreign medical personnel. Mm-hmm. It's going to be hard for them to bring people in or to convince people to come into this country uh, and, and, and and take these jobs. And frankly, we need those people. We don't generate enough, as I understand it, enough mm-hmm. uh, engineers, doctors, et cetera, within the country itself to support our needs. Could you talk to the impact on Connecticut, if, at all, if you know what that means? I mean, because we have lots. We have important hospitals in and around our area well, and other industry. Yeah, I think we have, as you know, we do have a lot. We have a couple of very large hospital systems. They're mm-hmm. well known. They're very, mm-hmm. they're, uh, very high high class, high tech operations. Uh, I think that they have the same problem all the other hospitals are complaining about in the country, and that is that a large number, particularly of their physicians, mm-hmm. are foreign born or immigrants. Mm-hmm. Some from the uh, Middle East, a lot from Pakistan mm-hmm. or India, mm-hmm. and they're very concerned that this order is going to exclude the ones who are already from these countries that are being uh, singled out. And the order, I think one of the other fears is the order may be expanded as time goes on. Oh, talk to that. If, yeah. Well, if one views it as an order that's simply trying to restrict 
immigration from nations that are, in a sense, at war, mm-hmm. that, that's one thing. If one's looking at it from the point of view that it's trying to restrict immigration of anybody who's a so-called radical Muslim or from that kind of a, uh, a culture, mm-hmm. it could be expanded to encompass um, certainly Pakistan, Indonesia, and a number of other countries mm. from which we do receive a large percentage of our doctors and technicians. Ah, so this could be the first shot out. I think that's possible. Uh-huh. I think that, the, that there's a good chance that the president was trying to make a limited strike, if you will, uh-huh. that he could justify more readily uh-huh. to see how it played. It did not play well. Right. What part of it didn't play well in your mind? Well, in my own mind? Yeah. I think this, basically it's the, it's the moral point of view. I hate to tell you that. It's a legal program, but I think the country... No, no, no. You can say anything you Okay. <clears throat> the country of immigrants. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, almost all of us were immigrants at one level or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of us came here under less than auspicious circumstances. Mm-hmm. And I find it... And I don't really believe that there's enough evidence, there's been enough evidence that opening up immigration again or permitting it to continue as it has is going to create a significant danger. And frankly, I think it is going to create some small danger, but that's a danger we've always had. Mm -hmm. We allowed a number of Bolsheviks to come in after the 1917 revolution. Mm -hmm. Now, it's true we did deport a bunch of them in 1919. Mm -hmm. We didn't restrict them. Mm -hmm. Even after that, a tremendous number of Eastern Europeans came in, and I'm sure somewhere in there, there were a few Bolsheviks that snuck back in. (laughs) And... It's been that way for hundreds of years. It hasn't changed. And why all of a sudden this is a big issue, I can't decide. Although I understand the president's point in the sense that moving around the countries is much easier than it used to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's much easier to get in the United States physically than it was probably 100 years ago. But I don't think that justifies the executive order. Right. And um, there's been an attack on... Uh, a tweeting attack by the president on various judges. Is, ha, have you ever seen that before? Uh, well, I've heard a lot of politicians complain about a lot of judges, but I've never seen anybody who did it in to that degree, uh, to that demeaning or disrespectful a degree right. in public, right. uh, knowing that it was going to be picked up by the uh, media. Well, and, and, and also knowing you're going to appear before them. I don't right. think that makes much difference. It doesn't make any no, difference. No, I know judges have been uh, hammered pretty hard, and they it never seemed to affect them very, very much. Right, right, right. But I do think that it was an unfortunate attack on a co-branch of government, co-equal branch of government. Right, right. It's sort of was an insight into whether or not the president thinks of it, of it as a co-equal branch. Well, it's not even that so much. It's that uh, you can attack a person's positions. Yes can attack a judge's decisions. I've done that many times. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to attack the judge. You start, or, or, or lawyer or whoever, right. you, you start you, you, from you, the you, proposition you. that he's doing his best or she's doing her best. Right. Not that they're deliberately trying to under, undermine the United States of America or whatever right. particular or, or cause. Or making it personal. That's what I mean, yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yes, right. right. Good. Yeah, right. Because obviously there's a give and take within the legal system of, you know, Agreeing and not agreeing. Well, whenever you have a trial, one side wins and one side loses. Right, and one side appeals and one side. Maybe, doesn't. maybe not. Right, right. Maybe depends maybe not. how bad you, how badly you lose. <laughs> how badly you lose, right? Exactly. Um, so, uh, what what do you think might happen now? I mean, the Ninth Circuit is going to hear this major case involving people come, trying to come into this company, the whole area in which you work. Well, one about, of the issues that's really interesting. Yeah is whether 
that I think, I think is going to be discussed mm-hmm. is whether the constitutional protections uh, against uh, free of equal rights against discrimination, et cetera, extend beyond our boundaries. Oh, oh, that's I think that's a fascinating issue to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other side of it, there's the, there's the substantive question of whether the president has the authority under the statutes to, to uh, uh, issue this order. I've, I'll be honest with you, I haven't read it myself. Mm-hmm. I haven't read the statute. I mm-hmm. did, however, I've heard others talking about it. I've mm-hmm. heard excerpts from the statute, mm-hmm. and it appears he had technically the authority to do it. But there's this whole question of whether he can exercise that authority in a discriminatory manner. Then you have to reach the question, well, is it a discriminatory manner if it doesn't affect people who are inside the four corners of our, of our boundaries? In other words, if it affects people who are trying to come into our boundaries. Correct. And do, what, outside, do, do non-American citizens hmm. living outside of the territorial boundaries of the United States have constitutional rights or constitutional protections, I think would be a better way to put it. Are they actually talking about the potential of people coming in or are they talking about the rights of states to admit them? I'm not sure. Because the way in which it's, it, it does say the state of Washington, it doesn't say some person who wants to get in by name versus Donald J. Trump. Well, the states, it, it's, that is a very interesting question because I just heard this morning, New York, for example, is, going, is uh, contemplating a statute in legislature that would prohibit New York police authorities from cooperating with the immigration authorities to enforce this executive order. Hmm. And in other words, you can't say to the cops, to the chief, send your guys out and right. pick this guy up. Right. And the, the, the common term for that is called nullification. The state mm-hmm. nullifies a federal statute in essence. Uh-huh. We've had it several times in history. They didn't go very well, but the other time it's happened recently, of course, is with the passage of these um, bills that are allowing, um, marijuana to be smoked recreationally or even medicinally because technically marijuana is still an illegal drug under the federal system mm-hmm. the states have an essence and some, some of them nullified that mm-hmm. and the federal government to date has taken the position not going to do anything about it this is a similar situation you know the state of washington the state of minnesota and now this particularly the state of new york i think mm-hmm. are saying we disagree with this as a matter of national policy and we're going to act as states mm-hmm. in our own uh sovereign uh, way mm-hmm. to nullify it. We're not going to allow it to be enforced in our state except, I suppose, by federal agents, but we're not going to help them. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> that's a very interesting concept because, as you know, technically, the United States, they call it the United States, it's a plural. It is a, it is a confederation of individual states. Each state is in and of itself its own governmental body. Mm-hmm. And the question of whether they can individually say we aren't going to do that we mm-hmm. don't want to follow that policy has been one that has torn this country back and forth since 1789 when they enacted the constitution and ratified it right right and it's the it's the the pulls and tugs of states and federal That's right right in the jacksonian era uh-huh. in the 1830s there was a great deal of nullification and the states tried to nullify a number of things particularly tariff laws mm-hmm. and uh, jackson went and enforced them said no we're not going to allow that put an end to it. And of course, the Civil War was fought largely over the issue of state nullification. Mm-hmm. Just not largely, but it was it was a fundamental theoretical issue that underlay the struggle over slavery and a number of other issues. Right. So we could be facing a very, you know, as states decide whether or not they're going to... It could be, it could be a problem. 
Right. Really now, the, the, um, the uh, Attorney General for the state of Connecticut has signed on to this brief uh, that we're discussing now. He's, I mean, there are, I think, 13 or 14, I'm not sure of the number, but in that area mm-hmm. of, of attorneys general across the country that have on behalf of the state of Washington and Minnesota joined. Uh, uh, what do you think about that? Well, I think one thing this whole issue underscores mm-hmm. is there's a, the line between politics and law is often blurred, very blurry. I mean, <laughs> particularly now. Huh? Particularly, particularly now. now. Yeah. I mean, the law is a system of governance. That's all it really is in the end, mm-hmm. if you look at it simply and fundamentally. And politics is part of governance, and the law is a restriction on the power of the authorities to govern. It also provides them with their uh, underlying basis for carrying on their activities of, go- uh, of governance. And we have a situation where politically, the Attorney General of Connecticut and the Governor of Connecticut, for primarily the Governor, are opposed to this whole idea, mm-hmm. and they have joined a brief mm-hmm. to try and legally undermine or, or, or negate mm-hmm. the actions of a president, of the political actions of a president with which they strongly disagree. Nothing wrong with that, mm-hmm. but it is a fascinating illustration of why law and politics tend to be blended into one another, and it's hard to divide the two at times. Right, and if you add businesses, if you add the great yes. tech tech companies in the in the world, really that happen to be, you know, based in states like Washington and others, uh, that adds an element. It's sort of an indication to me. I don't know how you would think about it, but it doesn't seem to me like the Trump administration really did their homework. I didn't get this. I don't get the sense that they spoke to these tech companies, these major tech companies in the country, about the issues that they might face with regard to this ban before they issued the ban. I, I, that's possible. I don't obviously know what they did or didn't do. I don't think the rollout of this policy was handled very well from a mm-hmm. political point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether, whether that's because of uh, whether that's because of a lack of uh, preparation and foundation mm-hmm. building. Mm-hmm. Or just as part of a rush, because mm-hmm. it seems that the president has been trying to emulate FDR's first hundred days and change <laughs> the world, right? And the circumstances aren't quite the same, right? Right. Well, let's look back a little bit on, um, you know, the, it's sort of interesting if we look at the Supreme Court right now. We have a, a justice in waiting. Yes. Uh, we have eight members of the court. Four and four. Four and four. Well, actually, it's right. one, one in the middle. Right, right. And then we have this case that potentially could go up from the Ninth Circuit. Well, he'd have to, the uh, uh, justice in waiting would have to have been confirmed in time to, uh, I believe this is what happens, would have to be confirmed in time to participate in the briefing and oral arguments or not be, he may not be allowed, he may not be able to participate in the case. Mm -hmm. The rate is going, that's probably likely to happen unless they do this uh, mm-hmm. lightning fast, which they may. Mm-hmm. If I were advising the president, I'd probably slow it down mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. him in there. Because right for... now, I think they lose. Right now, they lose, yeah. yeah well, that, I shouldn't that. say that. That's not fair. I can't Well, you that. don't know, but I mean, the way it's going, it's going very quickly right They're now. They're going to have a hard time. They yeah, have an yeah. easier time if he's in place. Oh, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of interesting. Well, let's go back. There was another case that um, was a about a year ago, and it was brought in California. It was about a California. It was a California case brought by the California Teachers Association. Well, it was actually brought by a couple members of that Mem- group members of against that. the California Teachers well, against, Association. Yes, against the California <clears throat> Teachers, and and that was about unions. 
Yes. Could you talk to us a little bit about that case? Yes, that case is actually very interesting, too, uh, and particularly uh, pertinent to Connecticut's situation. Oh, okay. It, it, has, it has long been held that there's a distinction between the power of a private corporation mm-hmm. to enter into union contracts or to compel its employees as part of those contracts mm-hmm. to join a union or support a union and the power of the public entity to do that. Because private employers aren't governed by the Constitution. They act on their own. Mm-hmm. Public employers are all subject to the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. And for many years, it's been argued that compelling employees to join a union shop in the public sector or to contribute to the mm-hmm. union through dues payments mm-hmm. is a violation of their First Amendment rights against a, a self-expression, freedom of expression, and to some degree, freedom, freedom of association. Mm-hmm. The California, that, that, that right was somewhat limited about uh, 20 or 30 years ago in another case, mm-hmm. in which the court held, you're correct, you can't compel people to support a union's political speech. Mm-hmm. And so we asked the unions to de- de- decide and to tell people what part of your dues payments go for political activity, what part go for collective bargaining, because it's not fair to the unions to have people who aren't paying dues be represented by the unions. Mm-hmm. This, of course, ignored the fact the unions are representing, representing them because they wanted to, but we'll, go, we'll skip that. Yeah. So <laughs> That's the underlying problem. <laughs> so that's been going, and for years the policy, the, the, wor- the world has been set up so that if a union would look at its dues structure and say, you're paying me $50 a month for dues, mm-hmm. 10% of that goes for political purposes. If you wish to opt out of paying that 10%, you may. Okay. okay. That seems fair. Well, it seems fair. It, unfortunately, the unions went a little too far as time went on, and they started making it harder and harder and harder to do that. For one thing, they don't tell anybody what I just told you. They don't. You have to figure <laughs> that out on your own. <laughs> California teachers argue this. these California Teachers mm-hmm. went against the union, arguing that was unfair, that they should not be compelled to either join the union or to pay dues at all. Mm-hmm. Because it really isn't possible to distinguish what part of the dues are political, what parts aren't, mm-hmm. because everything the unions do, in essence, is political. We've learned that in Connecticut right. with our public employees. Right. That case was winding its way up through the courts. In fact, it was rushed through the courts very quickly, got to the Supreme Court. Everybody thought it probably was going to come down in favor of the individuals. Mm-hmm. Then one of two things would happen. Either a ruling would say that it was absolutely unconstitutional to compel public employees to join a union or pay dues at all, or they would say that at a minimum, the unions have to have an opt-out policy which says we have to, I mean, an opt-in policy which says you have to come to us affirmatively and agree to pay these political, the political portion of the dues. Otherwise, we have to automatically reduce your dues. Mm-hmm. The betting was it was going to come down that you didn't have to join the union right, or right. pay any dues at all. Unfortunately for the uh, individual teachers, I suppose, uh, Justice Scalia died <laughs> just before they were going to decide this. Right. It came down to <clears throat> a 4-4 vote. Right. 4-4 vote, it goes back to the circuit. It's, they uphold the circuit decision. The Ninth Circuit favored the unions. Mm-hmm. There are a couple other versions of this case that are being brought up through the, the courts right now, and they're going to come back. The impact on Connecticut of all this is if the court holds, eventually. If the high court. The Supreme Court mm-hmm. holds that it's unconstitutional to compel employees to join a union or to compel employees to pay dues to a union, mm-hmm. then the uh, public employees' unions as a whole would take, obviously, a, a hit. Because mm-hmm. our union contracts throughout the state basically compel membership and dues payments. In fact, uh, in most of the contracts, the dues are deducted automatically without the employee ever seeing the check at all. Huh. And if the Supreme Court says that's unconstitutional, then that will have to end, and the unions will be put in a position of having to sell their services to the employees 
as a positive rather than just something we have to do. Right, to convince them to join. To convince them to join, <clears> because <throat> in, in essence, it would be a, a public sector national right to work act. Right, right. And so how do you have numbers on people in unions now in Connecticut, in the various unions? Well, not, not numbers, but I can but, tell but, you that much more than 50 or 60% of the public sector is unionized in Connecticut. It is. As okay. opposed to less than 9% in the private sector. And uh, if they do, if, if this pat goes through, if this Supreme Court ruling would come down that way, then uh, I think myself, the public employers will be compelled to tell the employees that you don't have to join if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. The contracts that allow for that right now, the call for automatic union membership mm-hmm. would all have to be, and that, that way would have to be abrogated. They'd have to terminate those provisions. And, I watched this happen years ago in another state right practice law mm-hmm. and in the private sector when they passed a right to work statute and gradually the, unions, the union power was eroded because a union to some degree is a business just like any other business. If, if, if it doesn't get enough dues in, it can't pay its own employees. And it can't pay its bills. can't pay its bills. I remember we had plants that would have 100 people. There. Everybody quit but 10 or 20 of them. And unions had to walk away because they could not afford to represent the employees as a group anymore. Huh. And so, how, so do the do the employees ever look back and wonder if they did the right thing in leaving the union? Is there a movement to restore the union involvement or not? In no, there places? never has been. I don't, never I don't know. Been. What so, the in other words, once it happens, it's sort of that's it. Well, once it happens, it changes the dynamics. Yeah. Of of, of collective bargaining of the union situation because our our system is essentially adversarial. Mm-hmm. In, in the collective bargaining realm, whether it's public employees or private employees. And that's different than a lot of, you know, in Germany, for example, it's very cooperative in many respects. Mm-hmm. Most of the uh, corporations in Germany, of any even small companies, have union members on their board. Mm-hmm. Things of that, we don't do that here. Mm-hmm. And so there's some, I heard one professor from uh, NYU a couple of years ago at a seminar I went to, or a conference I went to, mm-hmm. who said she thought that we should allow company unions again. She was a very liberal pro-union person. She said mm-hmm. her, her problem was that the unions are not, they, are, they, don't, have pro, they don't have a product to sell anymore. The uh, social welfare state we've created has undermined mm-hmm. their usefulness. Mm-hmm. And the average employee doesn't really uh, connect with the idea of collective bargaining very well as, as being a reason to continue unionization. Mm-hmm. I think she's probably right. I have a, a relative who's the, uh, one of the, uh, who's a, one of the, uh, the son of one of the head of the Teamsters Union. He's mm-hmm. told me the same thing. They're now searching for a new, there are things they can do. They have a lot to offer, mm-hmm. but they've got to go back and re, re-engineer themselves. And mm-hmm. that's what would happen if the Supreme Court decision comes down in favor of individual rights against the, the public employee union. Right, and right now the Ninth Circuit ruling holds, decision holds on that yes. in favor, but that will come up again. I think it will, yeah. Right, it, it, why wouldn't it? Right. I mean, I'd be shocked if it didn't. I know right. they're, Last mm-hmm. I read, there were three cases, I think, in the courts below that were working their way along. Right, right. And so it only got stuck at 4-4 because of the death of Justice Scalia. And so the new, assuming they have the same four on each side, yeah. the new justice, is most, who, by the way, is not a particular friend of labor, this uh, fellow that's up, uh-huh. is most likely going to vote, I would think, against the unions. Right. And that will have a dramatic impact on Connecticut. Tell us about that. Well... I mean, if it actually came down from the Supreme If it actually point. came down the way, I think the politi- Connecticut's public employee unions would be hurt. 
Mm-hmm. I think their power would be eroded. It would take time. It would take years, but it mm-hmm. would gradually be eroded. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the truth of the matter is you tell somebody who's 25 years old that you don't have to pay the 50 bucks a month anymore if you don't want to, and they don't. Mm-hmm. And uh, How would uh, that affect the universities? Uh, the same I, way. It would make it, well, what, the public universities, it would affect the same way. Private universities would not be affected. Ah. Remember, and only this only applies to the public sector. It has nothing to do with private sector unionization. Okay. That's another thing that's coming up. Tell us. There's a, there's a bill that's been put in front of the House of Representatives that would create a nationwide right-to-work statute. Mm-hmm. And right-to-work is essentially what I just described for the public sector. Same thing. You can't compel anybody to join a union or pay dues under any circumstances. There are 29 states now, I think it is, that are right-to-work states, uh, including some you wouldn't expect, like Michigan and Wisconsin. Hmm. Uh, if, they pass, if they pass it nationally, it's never had a chance before. They never had a Republican House, Senate, mm. and President at a time when this thing came up. Mm-hmm. And they've always had either one, the other party controlled either one of the Houses of Congress or the presidency. Mm-hmm. So it'd get vetoed or knocked out. Mm-hmm. There is a chance it will pass this time, though. They don't think there's much of a chance. Wow. That would not have much impact on Connecticut at all. Because <laughs> so, so, uh, so little unionization of the private sector here. Right. And so, yeah, so this, this, this we could be in for a new era. Of yes. Both on the public and private level, right? Yes, but mostly on the public level here. Yeah, right. On the and uh, I think it, would be a, it will be a dramatic change. It will affect the politics of the state tremendously. Mm-hmm. It'll affect budgeting at the at the state level and the local level tremendously. It'll, it'll do a lot over time. But it's going to take several years for that to kick in. Give us an example of what you just said of how it would affect the state and and the funding and all. Well, I think that uh, now we're getting back into politics again. But yeah, I think well, that the it's all I, politics. I think it's fairly well established that the public unions in the state have a strong presence. Correct in Hartford. On the local level, I think the, lo- the local unions, the municipal unions, have a fairly strong presence in a lot of the towns and, and cities, mm-hmm. uh, at least to the extent that their interests have to be constantly considered and mixed into the pot when, when policy decisions relative to spending are being made. Mm-hmm. Again, if the, if the union funds dry up because employees drop out or decline to pay dues, they don't have the money to lobby anymore that they, they have right now. Mm-hmm. And right now, in all fairness, their power politically probably is disproportionate to their real representation of the population. Right. But also their contracts, I mean, just even in small towns and, and relative. Well, contracts wouldn't be affected except for that one part. Yes. Okay. I mean, what happens is the power to collectively, the power of the union to pursue collective bargaining would be, it would be changed. For example, mm-hmm. uh, as you may know, in Connecticut, if you run into a, a, a loggerheads with a union in, in a town mm-hmm. and you can't come to an agreement, mm-hmm. They don't have the power to strike like you have in the private sector. They go to you go to arbitration. Correct. Well, binding arbitration is an expensive proposition. You're talking thirty, forty thousand dollars for some many instances. For and this side. comes up as an issue all the time. Not all the time, but it comes well, up enough. Yeah. Well, in my and if town. the unions <laughs> don't have the money to pay the lawyers to arbitrate any longer, then they're going to be a little more, uh, a little less able, rather, to uh, contest mm-hmm. uh, with the towns. The towns will impose more severe economic um, situations on them. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Let's turn to um, another topic, um, the National Labor Relations Board, which mm-hmm. has a couple of vacancies right now. Yes. And it might um, be affected. It will be over time. Over it takes time. time. Over time, uh, under this new Trump administration. Yeah, the Labor Board's vacancies are staggered. 
Okay. So it takes a good, usually it takes two years for a new president to remote cast the board in his own mold. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, discuss, so one of the issues that is uh, uh, under discussion is the role of social media. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that whole issue and employees' rights? Well, the, from the labor board point of view, the yeah. labor board, uh, because of the decline in private sector unionization, has been thrashing around finding something for itself to do. Mm-hmm. And the, the the National Labor Relations Act does not actually just protect unions; it protects the employees, the private employees' right mm-hmm. to engage in certain protected activities, concerted activities, mm-hmm. have to have a communal activity. Now. Social media is one of these things that creates concerted communal activity. An employee is uh, writing critical comments and putting it on their Facebook page, and other employees are reading it. It's done for the to the with the intention of other employees reading it. Mm -hmm. You can certainly argue that that's a concerted activity. The board has argued, as has taken the position in the last five years, or maybe seven or eight years now that those activities are protected in many instances. There are limitations, but it's created some real problems for employers. Okay, so what, they, what, they, what the board has said is that the employee is entitled to the freedom to speak yes. his or her mind on Facebook. Right, as long as other employees are looking at it. As long as other employees are looking yeah, at it. If you could prove nobody was looking at it, then it probably wouldn't count. <laughs> right, but right. the uh, can't prove that very easily. Well, nobody can prove that. <laughs> You're not allowed to be terribly obscene either, but... Okay. It has created problems for some of the companies because their position is, you know, people get on the internet and they make nasty remarks about their about their employers. Oh, yeah. It hurts the company's business. Okay. And that has created a conflict in front of the board. Right. Well, in the old days before Facebook and Twitter and everything else, we weren't going there. You didn't have that problem. You didn't have that problem and you had sort of the separation of social, you know, you know, social business stuff. I mean, you didn't do right. that publicly. Yeah, you had a separation of social and business intercourse. Right. And they used to call it that uh, employees were protected, and they sort of talked about it in terms of being standing around the water cooler. Right. Making snotty remarks about each other. Right. Or, or your boss, but your boss didn't hear it necessarily. Well, and whether they heard it or not wasn't important. The point right. was that you had a right to do that as long as it was not too too egregious. Mm-hmm. And the question is, what, when does it become too egregious? And the board has gone back is, is is sort of struggling with that, and I think a Trump board will be like more likely to limit that. They'll find a they'll find an egregious nature in the remarks a lot more easily than say the Obama board has. Right, and then what they'll say is they're not protected anymore. You're not protected. And you can any, get fired, and you can get fired, and so they'll in effect shut down um, a, a written written discussion on, on well, Facebook in certain areas. Yeah, I don't think they'll shut it down. It's, uh, that's what's so odd about it. It's not area. It's it's a matter of degree. At what point have you gone beyond what's protected? Mm-hmm. The question is what's protected concerted activity, mm-hmm. and the the arguments in front of the board have really dealt with. I think the question of protection, mm-hmm. for example, uh, gross obscenities generally are not protected, although they've been sort of edging toward allowing more of that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the Trump board is going to edge back away from that, but mm-hmm. how far they'll go, I honestly don't know. Right, but that's that's something to, that's sort of fascinating. Are there any other areas of law that you look at the Trump administration and say that could change too? Well, it's going to be interesting. I don't think there. Are, yes, there are a couple that, uh, mm-hmm. that may involve change, like the wage and hour laws, where 
I don't think we'll see a big push for an increase in the federal minimum wage in the next couple of years. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> but mostly what you're going to find, I think, is a slowing down mm-hmm. of movement, uh, a, la- uh, a lack of, of effort, a lack of progress, a benign neglect almost of certain areas. Mm-hmm. I think you're going to see things that are on the have been on the cutting edge, so to speak, drawn back a little bit. I think this will be drawback on uh, some of the equal pay stuff. Mm-hmm. The EOC now, for example, is insisting that, uh, as you may or may not know, every employer, every large employer of over so many people files EEOC reports. Mm-hmm. And they list and they list their employees by race, ex- gender, et cetera. And now the EEOC is asking that they, has instructed them to include wage, mm-hmm. wages, mm-hmm. and salaries with an idea of looking toward, toward gender equity issues. Mm-hmm. That's brand new. It's been strongly resisted uh, because the employers don't want their wage uh, structures released for any reason that's mm-hmm. private to them. And they may draw, the EOC may draw back from that. I don't know if they will or not, but they might. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the OFCCP, Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, that enforces affirmative action. Mm-hmm. And they've been sort of mussing around with LBGTQ mm-hmm. issues. I think they may draw back a little bit. It's not mm-hmm. that they're going to say no, mm-hmm. not that they're going to change much. Mm-hmm. They're just not going to do much about it. It's my guess. What about the press? As, what about the press, the, what about the media, uh, which is constantly being attacked uh, by the president uh, as an economic entity? And so you have newspapers, you have radio stations, you have television stations, and their economic well-being, their ability mm-hmm. to draw listeners in, viewers in, readers in, uh, could be threatened by a constant barrage of it's all fake news. Don't even bother to read it. Don't buy it. Don't go near it. Don't listen. I think you're right. I think that one of the, because we, we have to sort of separate those things. One of the things we're having is this mainline media is already suffering to some degree mm-hmm. because of the, uh, the uh, uh, decline of print media as a whole. Yes. And from the fact that the, you, know, you have how many hundred stations on television which have uh, eaten up the uh, networks no longer. When, we, when I was a child, there were three networks in my hometown. There was one extra one. So there were four <laughs> networks. That was it. What was your hometown? Akron, Ohio. Okay. Now there are hundreds of networks, little right. networks. Anybody right. can get a phone booth and a camera. They have a network on the internet itself. Right. And right. I think that's hurting them. I think this, this, this attack on the press serves two purposes for the president. I think it hurts the press, which he wants to do. Mm-hmm. But I also think it allows him to portray himself consistently as some kind of a victim. Hmm. I think a, a lot during the campaign we saw that. Everybody was against him. The shtick was that I'm a victim, mm-hmm. and I'm a victim fighting for whatever he's fighting for this afternoon. Right. And I think that is something that he relishes and thrives on. Right, right. So if you were the head of CNN, what would you do? I have no idea. <laughs> it's an interesting legal question, though. Well, there's there's some legal there's some legal issues there, but I think primarily that's a political. I mean, I, I understand it's back and forth. I yeah. understand. I mean, and, and we're you know, I mean, we're, we're hardened to do. that. That's not the issue. The issue is the economics of it, really. The one thing that the mm-hmm. press will get out of this, I think, possibly, mm-hmm. is as you're aware, the FCC, for example, can be used to punish people. But I don't think he'll do that because it'd be so so apparent what right. he was doing. <laughs> right. They try not to be too obvious about it. Right, right, right. It won't be like I remember when Nixon did the. Uh, Tax returns got the IRS after everybody. I don't think he's going to pull that stunt. No, I don't think so. That's right. Right. 
Um, well, it looks like our time time is just about up, uh, and it goes fast when the topics are so interesting. We want to thank Bob Mitchell for joining us in New Haven in our studio today, for coming in in the rain and and having a most interesting conversation about where we're going and and who knows, right? Right. Thank you very much. It was a real privilege to be here. Thank you so much. And uh, to our listeners, you can go to the newhavenindependent.org website to get a podcast of this broadcast, to listen to the wide variety of shows that the station is producing each day. Um, So uh, thank you again, Bob, very much. And we will have you back again. Bye-bye.